Hi, I'm Paul, and this is ArcNext Sessions, episode 142. Happy 4th of July to our American listeners, and a happy belated Canada Day for our listeners north of the border. Today's show offers a very American conversation with the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Paul Goldberger. The discussion was recorded live at ArcConnect Outpost last month for the launch of his latest book, Ballpark. Ballpark takes a deep dive into the history of the ballpark and the impact it's had on the evolution of the American city. The book looks at a selection of case studies to arrive at a simple yet compelling thesis. In the ballpark, Goldberger writes, the two sides of the American character, the Jeffersonian impulse toward open space and rural expanse, and the Hamiltonian belief in the city and in industrial infrastructure, are joined and cannot be torn apart. It's a really fascinating book, and if you're interested in a copy of it, we still have a few remaining, both in-shop at our downtown L.A. Arts District location of ArcConnect Outpost, and also online at outpost.arconnect.com. Paul Goldberger began his career at the New York Times, where in 1984, his architecture criticism was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism, the highest award in journalism. From 1997 through 2011, he served as the architecture critic for The New Yorker, where he wrote the magazine's celebrated Skyline column. He's currently a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and holds the Joseph Urban Chair in Design and Architecture at the New School in New York City. Our conversation starts with me asking Paul about his career path and how it's led him to a place where the American ballpark is the most deserving of his attention. So in other words, how did I go from writing about serious things to writing about ballparks? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a big question because I've spent my life writing about architecture, but I've always been most interested in where architecture connects to the rest of life, basically. I've never felt inclined to approach it from a standpoint of theory or ideology, but more experiential. You know, what, what does a building feel like? And how does it make you feel? And how does the experience of architecture connect with the rest of the things we do and feel, which is why not to move quickly to a different book, but a few years ago, I wrote a book called Why Architecture Matters that sort of tried to take that whole idea and and explain it to people who don't necessarily get it or understand it, you know, why why I care about it is sort of, and how it affects our lives. But that's kind of been for me always a theme, but I've also always liked baseball and liked ballparks. When one of my sons was five, I remember taking him. I'd never been to Wrigley Field somehow ever. And I remember taking him on a trip to Chicago just so we could go together to see it. And, you know, various other kind of key moments in my own childhood that seemed to relate to baseball parks. And then about 10 years ago, when the new Yankee Stadium and the new City Field opened in New York in 2009, the only time two major league ballparks have ever opened in the same city in the same year. I was at the New Yorker then, and the editor said, you've got to write about these. And so I said, great, and looked into it and wrote a piece. But I realized that I was barely scratching the surface. It was just, I started learning more about the history than I'd known before, far more than there was room for in that article. And that was when the idea of this book began to kind of percolate or whatever. And, uh, I realized how intimately connected the history of baseball 
and the history of the American city actually are, and that nobody had kind of put baseball and urbanism together as subjects. And so uh, I said something to my publisher, and it was just when we were getting started on this book I wrote in between Why Architecture Matters and this, which was a biography of Frank Gehry, the the architect Frank Gehry. And they said, we love this idea, but don't even touch it until you finish the Frank Gehry book. Because I think they were worried that that was a big project. It was going to take a long time. And they were worried enough, I think. At that point, Frank Gehry was in his 80s. And they were a little worried about getting it done while he was still around. And so they said, you know, great idea, but finish Gary first. So I did, and then I did this, and here we are. And Frank Gary's still fine. He's 90. So, <laughs> so there we are. So what is it about Baseball Park that has transformed and connected with cities in ways that other large sports stadiums like uh football stadiums right. and soccer stadiums, these areas that you refer a lot in, in your book to the uh, Rue in, in Herb. Rue in Herb, the, the Latin term meaning the rural in the urban. So how, right, right. how does a, a soccer or a football stadium, for example, not have that same type of impact? Well, a football stadium, stadium is, I think some of it is scale. A football stadium is much, much bigger some of it is the way you it, it's supposed to be experienced. You experience football better from above, really, looking down so you can see the whole action on the gridiron. So, you know, the, if we were a football game, you guys would be very well positioned there. Um, and whereas, you know, if we were a baseball game, you guys would be well positioned here. But the relationship of the rural and the urban is much more subtle in baseball. I mean, you know, a baseball field really does symbolize sort of infinite space. You know, football, hockey, basketball, soccer are all in defined, limited, finite space. And they're played against the clock and in limited space. Baseball is not played against the clock. And the only thing that is actually defined in the rules of baseball is the diamond. The outfield is technically infinite. You know, you can put the bleachers in the fence wherever you want. And it's slightly different from ballpark to ballpark. They're not the same. So it's a kind of, as a symbol of nature and the countryside going on, it does something really interesting and different that other sports don't do. But also, because baseball grew up when it did in the 19th century, when American cities were themselves growing up, it became very deeply intertwined into the urban fabric. And that was the real thing I wanted to trace, is that way it's baseball kind of weaves into the urban fabric, came out of neighborhoods, was connected to neighborhoods. Many ballparks, as you know, the eccentricity of them was due in part to the unusual shape of the lot and the fact that they couldn't, you know, they, it got cut off in funny ways. The most famous example, of course, being the green monster at Fenway. So I wanted to kind of look at that relationship and kind of trace it and, and play with it. And then I realized that because then in the 50s and on, onward, ballparks became bigger and more geometric and less connected to the city and surrounded by acres of asphalt and parking. That was reflecting another whole part of our urban history, which is the suburban exodus. And then beginning with Camden Yards in Baltimore in 1992, the return to the city. And in each case, 
baseball kind of tracks American urbanism. And so, you know, wow, you know, this actually is telling you about the history of American cities and nobody's ever done much with that. Whereas other sports just don't do that. Football really grew big much later. The history of professional football is a much more recent one. Soccer in America, even more recent. Basketball is really in indoor arenas, some of which are architecturally interesting, but most of them are not. And so there isn't that long history. Baseball, you know, we have now 150 years of different kinds of connections to cities in different ways. So you you just described the uh, first three major stages in baseball's relationship with, yes. with uh, urban cities. You in the book you also talk about kind of an unsettling, or I guess I, I interpret it as unsettling fourth stage, right? Which uh, you referenced the stadium in the ballpark in Atlanta yes. and the ballpark in Miami, Atlanta most of all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit sure. about this new development? Yeah, absolutely. No, you're totally right. And I should say that when I first embarked on this book, I thought, you know, there were three clearly defined stages. The early stuff integrated into cities, the middle generation of all the concrete donuts, suburban and separated from cities, and then Camden Yards onward reintegration into cities. And it's still sort of true. But the more I got into it, the more I realized it's in fact a little more complicated. And we have a whole developing fourth phase of kind of the theme park city. Baseball is part of the theme park city. The most dramatic example by far is the new ballpark in Atlanta for the Braves that uh, opened in 2017. So it's the newest of the major league parks. And it's not in the city as so many of them now are, but way outside the city in Cobb County, the Braves bought 60 acres on a freeway and have developed it as a kind of pseudo city with, uh, it's you know, like shopping and bars and restaurants and a hotel and some condos and an office building. And then anchoring this whole thing is this big ballpark. So it is very much trying to follow this recognition since Camden Yards about how much baseball should be integrated into an urban surrounding, but it's an entirely fake, created, artificial urban surrounding as opposed to the real one. So, you know, is it more urban or less urban? It all depends on how you, but in any event, it's certainly a little bit disingenuous as as a thing. And uh, so that made me, as I was working on the book, kind of reevaluate my thinking a little bit and I realized it's now the, the real way you might define the fourth generation is the desire to control the world outside the gates of the ballpark. And the minute I thought of it that way, suddenly a lot of other things fell into place. For example, St. Louis, where Bush Stadium is actually pretty good. Downtown Stadium, not bad. Next door, the site of the old Bush Stadium, the team retained control over And they're building something called Ballpark Village, where there are, again, you know, restaurants, bars, entertainment places, condos, so you can live and, you know, right by the ballpark, all this stuff. And it's all about controlling the environment around the ballpark. The, uh, um, and again, you know, it could be much worse. And at least that whole agglomeration of stuff is downtown, but still. 
the new owners of the Chicago Cubs who have mostly done a really good and respectful job of restoring Wrigley Field, which is you know, it's on the cover of the book and is one of the great things in the world, have nevertheless also been extending their reach and have acquired a lot of property around and are redeveloping it. There's an office building, a hotel, a bunch of other things. And none of that stuff is inherently bad. The hotel, in fact, they've named it the Hotel Zachary in honor of Zachary Taylor Davis, the architect of Wrigley Field. I mean, they're trying to be respectful of all this stuff, but it still has the effect of making it all a little bit more generic. And that, you know, funky Wrigleyville that surrounded the ballpark is becoming, you know, a little bit more like, I don't know, Sherman Oaks or something like that, you know, whatever. So it's it's not a terrible thing, but we are losing a little bit, even though it's happening. Well, when I read about that in your book, I immediately went back to the beginning of your book where you talk about how Elysian Fields, which yes. is considered to be the first ballpark in the world. Well, in the it, 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 it's certainly the first debatable. important place where baseball was played. It was in Hoboken, New Jersey, across from um, the Hudson River from New York City, because there were a lot of New York teams. You know, a lot of the other part of this book is to say that the history of baseball is more urban than the myth makers at Cooperstown would want people to believe. And that field called Elysian Fields was not literally where baseball began, but it was the first sort of major field that became known as a venue to go to baseball. I call the first real baseball park uh, something that happened just a little bit later in Brooklyn called Union Grounds. Yeah, because the, the skating rink that, turned, uh, skating rink turned into a ballpark because the guy who put that together it was the first time somebody put a fence around the entire thing and charged people money to come in. Whereas Elysian Fields was really just like a very large park with a ball field and had other kinds of entertainment to attract people. But baseball was just sort of one of the sights going on. And it was more before, just as it was on the verge of becoming a more professional sport. And Union Grounds kind of was just as it was becoming a little more something that they realized, gee, we could make money from this thing. Yeah. And so. But the, uh, the Legion Field seemed to be a great, a great place to play baseball yes. until the developer became a little overambitious and started right. turning the the surrounding area into like a carnival-like destination. Yes. And that ultimately became morally bankrupt and, and led to the uh, Yes, yes. It, it, it began to attract a lot of what I guess were euphemistically referred to as undesirable elements. But there's always been in the whole history of baseball a tension between the extent to which there's going to be entertainment versus looking at the sport, you know, seriously and no distraction and so forth. The original owner, not original, but the guy who owned for many, many years and built up the St. Louis Browns was a tavern owner named Chris Vanderai, German-born tavern owner in St. Louis, who bought the team because he thought he could sell more beer. And he actually put a tavern way out in the outfield of Sportsman's Park and had so much ancillary entertainment that he actually advertised it as the Coney Island of the West. At the same time, you had 
the, the National League was being formed to try to assert the idea that baseball is upright and righteous and a sport for Victorian gentlemen and no baseball. National League teams originally were not permitted to play on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and no alcohol could be served in their ballparks. The Browns played in something that I don't remember what its official name was, but it was known colloquially as the Beer and Whiskey League. And the, the two of them represented a kind of you know dichotomy, the, the, the struggle. Ultimately, the National League was more powerful financially and bought out the other, but gave in to most of its rules. So the Beer and Whiskey League was subsumed into the National League, but the National League's restrictions faded away very quickly. And of course, baseball was played on Sunday. And, and as you may notice, beer is still is permitted in ballparks. And so, um, so, you know, there we are. But it's a long history of tension about how much is this going to be entertainment versus other things. It's not as though that was just invented in our time. So do you feel like this kind of fourth stage of baseball development kind of faux urban developments is uh, is related back to that original Well, it may concept. be a little, uh, somewhat. It's certainly the desire to combine baseball with other forms of distraction and entertainment is not new. Let me put it that way. I don't know whether these people are consciously trying to evoke it or whether they just unconsciously are doing the same thing, but there is a long history of it. They're not the first people to violate the purity of the virginal purity of baseball with other things. And it also reflects the sort of growing tendency to look at cities kind of as theme parks. You know, there's a, I quote an essay in the book by Charles Moore, great architect who lived in LA for many, many years and then became Dean of the Yale School of Architecture, who wrote in 1965 the most, one of the most brilliant essays I've ever read called You Have to Pay for the Public Life that was the first time anybody had ever tried to seriously analyze Disneyland. And he said, the reason people love Disneyland is because it gives people in Southern California the opportunity to do something that they otherwise could not do, which is walk around in an entertaining, stimulating, lively urban environment, as opposed to riding around in cars all the time. So, you know, Moore was actually predicting in a way the way the city and the theme park would eventually kind of somehow become more similar. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. So once again, baseball reflects it. What do you think about that, this, this new uh, development? Well, I, I, as I said, at least it's, it's telling us what is going on, which baseball has been this like little indicator I think I have very different feelings about the version of it that, that I described in St. Louis and Chicago, mm -hmm. which it's kind of hard to complain about too much. I, even if I wouldn't do it precisely that way, I still, you know, at the end of the day, whatever. Um, and what's happened in Atlanta, the decision to pull up stakes, leave the city and go to this uh, rural, not rural, but suburban area way outside the, the city and create a make-believe Disneyland city and put the ballpark there, I find more disturbing and more troubling. Some of it has to do with something that is not directly, certainly not connected to architecture, but connected 
to baseball in a different way, which, you know, baseball, not only does it reflect architecture in cities throughout American history, it of course also reflects our sociocultural issues and struggles and, and, and our racial struggles and issues, of course. And Cobb County, where the Braves have built this, is the only county in metropolitan Atlanta that is not part of the regional transit system. You basically cannot get there except in a car. And if you are a poor African-American kid who lives in downtown Atlanta, you can't get to a ball game anymore, basically. And that, that's a very, very sad thing. Um, I find that, you know, profoundly troubling. And while I would not go so far as to suggest that that organization had a racist intent, it nevertheless, there is a racist result to the way in which, you know, this is playing out. And that's a sadness to me. So I make a distinction between, you know, a little bit of theme park stuff going on in like St. Louis and other cities, or even like Detroit, where Comerica Park has all these rides and Ferris wheels and merry-go-rounds and stuff around it. Whatever, fine. You know, if it convinces people to bring their family to the ballpark, so be it. And this entire make-believe world far away. Now, to be fair to them, it is also true that while they had a an inner-city downtown site in Atlanta where Turner Field was and still is, it was not a great site. And they wanted to expand and redevelop around it in ways that these other teams I've mentioned have been doing. And my understanding is the city of Atlanta was not particularly cooperative, which led them to do this. I talk about all this in the book, but I did not investigate it fully enough to really, you know, go into more detail than that. I might be fishing a little bit for uh, um, confirmation of a kind of a wacky theory that I have, but do you think... I that, love wacky theories. Okay. <laughs> do you think that this new trend in, in ballpark development is kind of uh, an indication of a cultural shift we're going through in general, which can also be traced back to how writing and editorial and journalism is also shifting. You know, I, I think, you know, as somebody I've kind of watched and in some ways been complicit in the, in the, the kind of the transition from traditional journalism to new media journalism, right. I've seen how journalism has changed. Obviously you have, you sure. have a much wider, sure. wider perspective on that. It seems like we are moving towards kind of catering to a lower common denominator, you know, a lot of clickbait, uh, a lot of, you know, prioritization on traffic, quick buck, maybe lesser quality in general. There's still a lot of amazing, amazing quality, but in general, giving people kind of what they want, packaging entertainment as news. Is that is that what we're doing with these with these kind of faux city environments that we're wrapping new, these ballparks with? Um, we are, to some extent, yes. But remember, the city doesn't function as the sort of industrial manufacturing shipping center that it once did. I mean, all cities are uh, places, all major and prosperous international cities, let's say, like Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and so forth, are places where you know the economy is driven more by service economy than by physical manufacturing. 
Chicago is not the city of the stockyards anymore that Carl Sandburg wrote about. And in fact, it is also becoming more a place of leisure and more a place in which people find it pleasant to live and are taking neighborhoods that had not been thought of as places to live and turning them into places to live, all of which probably all of us in this room would think is generally a good thing, not a bad thing. And so, I mean, the, the uh, reinvention of industrial neighborhoods as residential neighborhoods, which you could say, I guess, started with Soho in New York 50 years ago and is now everywhere, is much more a good thing than a bad thing. So there are aspects of this evolution that are really, I think, positive. You touched on something else, which is, I don't think related, but is certainly driven by technology in the same way, which is the the fact that people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And so, you know, they're not interested in reading long articles. I hope they're still interested in reading books. But in any case, the uh, um, they're, you know, they certainly don't have the time or the attention for the amount of extended attention that people once gave things. And that, of course, is an issue that affects baseball in a much broader way that goes far beyond the ballparks and the cities. You know, as we know, the, the, the romantic beauty of baseball as not being played against the clock is also, uh, from a marketing standpoint, difficult and challenging because baseball games are sometimes long. You never know how long they're really going to be. Do you leave in the seventh inning or not? Do you, you know, all this stuff. And it is definitely not a natural sport for an age of very short attention spans. Although at the same time, you know, in a weird way, because it doesn't at every second demand your full attention the way basketball or hockey, say, do with the constant action broken only by endless timeouts, you know, allows you to sort of do other things at the same time. You know, there's a very interesting book that came out a couple of years ago that Yale Press published that is in the same series of my as my Why Architecture Matters book. It's actually called Why Baseball Matters that tries to make an argument for the relevance of baseball in an age of the short attention span. And there's an amazing picture on the cover. It's a photograph of, I don't remember which ballpark it's in, but, you know, the stands filled with people. And then there's a but there's a close-up of a guy sitting in the stands watching the game that's there on his iPhone. <laughs> and immediately, you know, you, you, you see the, the tension between technology and being in the real place. Uh, and then the author essentially makes the, the book is an attempt to answer that picture. <laughs> wow. One of the things that actually was very new to me reading this book is the inconsistency in the, of the uh, dimension and an overall shape of, right. of fields. I mean, specifically the outfields. Yeah, it has to be because the, the diamond right. is very prescribed, but nothing else is. What are your thoughts on, on that eccentricity in ballpark design I, I, or the I, lack of... I think it's guidelines. wonderful. I yeah. think the eccentricity is absolutely deeply entrenched in the history of baseball. And I think that was one of the things of the many things we lost track of in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Valuing that eccentricity was one of them. And, you know, they became the age of the concrete donut was not only the age of the anti-urban ballpark, it was also the age of the overly standardized ballpark. Mm -hmm. 
And maybe the most important contribution that Camden Yards design made, people talk all about the retro stuff and all that, but ultimately what was more important than that was the intentional, willful eccentricity of it. It was not symmetrical. And certain things, you know, the right field and the left field were not the same. And they kept that great warehouse that was just, you know, adjacent to it. And, you know, there were many, many elements of it that made it, that made it you know, it's, you know, a little bit off in a quirky way. And they, they realized that not the least of the attractions of the great classic ballparks was quirkiness. And so if it wasn't going to happen naturally, you'd have to sort of get it in there somehow. Now, as I think I said earlier, a lot of that came from just street patterns and things like that. You know, the old Griffith Stadium, which is long, long gone in Washington, D.C., actually had, I think it was right field, had a big notch cut out of it because there were two or three houses that wouldn't sell when they were assembling the parcel of land to build the ballpark. And so they, you know, they were far enough back that it was not like you couldn't have a right field. You did, but you had a right field that had a funny shape. And, you know, so um, I don't think anyone is, is or should do anything quite that crazy anymore. But certainly we don't, they don't need to be absolutely symmetrical. And the, and the idea that the game is a little bit different everywhere Un, again, unlike other sports, you know, if you were in, if you were a player playing in Staples Arena, you're not supposed to feel how different it may be from some other place. I mean, maybe the crowd and the signs, and obviously, you know, a, lo- a hometown crowd is a hometown crowd. But but putting that aside for the moment, basically, you know, the actual place where play takes place is exactly the same. Yeah. Baseball is the only sport where part of the idea is it's not exactly the same. But, you know, and that's why also the long tradition of, of describing ballparks as, you know, pitchers or hitters places. Uh, I don't make too much of that in my book. I allude to it a little bit, but not, not too much. Because I, I think that argument, while it's correct in some cases, it gets you quickly down a road that you should excuse the expression is very inside baseball. I mean, because <laughs> and. You know, as I, I did not want this book to either have a lot of architectural jargon that would turn off baseball people or too much inside baseball that would turn off architecture people. The whole idea of it was to try to bring those worlds together. Speaking of quirkiness, I, I especially loved the, uh, you know, the, the very earliest baseball stadiums that are baseball parks that would leave structures in the middle of the outfield yeah. like in union grounds they yes. when they yeah, yeah. cleared the pond they left that right. shed in right, the middle right, and right. there was another field where there was a this a scoreboard was right in the middle scoreboard of the field and a couple of a couple of flagpoles at yeah. various times in history and stuff like that yeah 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 just yeah. a couple more questions sure so with all this research you've done if you were given the opportunity to convey a message or or a request to all the architects out there that are working right. on on uh, ballparks, stadiums, and what would that be? Connect to the city, make it part of what's around it, as much as anything. Not an isolated object. I think that's the most important thing. Obviously, also be as committed as possible to scale and intimacy. It's one of the great things about great ballparks is that sense of connection you feel to it. 
again, it's another reason it's very, very different from football. You know, I don't think a football stadium fits terribly well into an urban environment. It's twice as big and used a tenth as often. So, you know, if a football stadium is used eight times a year, a baseball park is used a minimum of 80 times a year and sometimes more. So that's, they're, they're, they're very, very different. So maintaining intimacy is key. Uh, you know, John Pastier, who many years ago was the architecture critic of the LA Times and who over the years has written a great deal also about ballparks, has, um, he uh, pointed out at one point when the new Comiskey Park just now has the horrible name of Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago was built. When uh, that opened, he said the front row in the upper deck, front row of seats in the upper deck is farther from the field than the back row of seats in the upper deck of the old Comiskey Park because everything is so big and so gargantuan and so spread out. And they had no concept of the importance of intimacy. And again, that's another thing that Camden Yards contributed, which is a reawakening of the value of that and of trying to maintain sight lines and closeness. You know, what happened for a long time was because everybody thought that there was something so horrible about the pillars and posts that were supporting a lot of old, the upper decks and old ballparks and who wants to be stuck behind it and lose a little bit of the view. So everything had to be cantilevered. And to avoid that, you know, they didn't overhang as much, which meant everything kind of got bigger and pushed back. Hence, things like that Chicago thing I was telling you about. Everybody was suddenly so far away. I'd rather have a couple of seats that are a little bit blocked or you leave a little space behind the pole and don't put anybody behind the pole and let everybody be closer, for example. But anyway. Who do you think is doing a really good job with ballpark design these days? Well, you know, there's one, one thing that I'm very excited about. We'll see what happens. Bjork Ingalls, interesting architect who has no experience in this, was asked by the Oakland A's to do their new ballpark. I, we managed to get a picture of it into the book just at the last minute under deadline. And it's right near the end of the book. Hopefully it will go ahead. It looks like it's moving forward, but it's not literally under construction yet. So that's one I'm very optimistic about because it has a kind of freshness to it. You know, ballpark design, a lot of it has been uh, the province of one firm for many years. The firm that came out of the old HOK, HOK Sport, which then broke away and became an independent firm and renamed itself Populous, which did Camden Yards, has done many of the others since. They've actually done uh, some very good ballparks. In Camden Yards, of course, is historically incredibly important. They did what I think is maybe the best of the relatively new ones, which is PNC in Pittsburgh. They were co-architects with Antoine Predock in uh, San Diego. They did uh, San Francisco, which is wonderful. So they've actually, they, you know, after Camden Yards, which they were pushed, the book tells the whole story of how they were basically pushed into it by the ownership of the Baltimore Orioles at the time, they had initially come to them with a yet another concrete donut, which they were also very good at designing. And, um, and it was only because Baltimore management rejected that, that they then said, okay, you know, we, they didn't want to lose the job. So they figured out how to do it a different way. And 
they then completely got religion. And after that started going around promoting themselves as the ultimate authority on, you know, new slash old style baseball only, not concrete donut ballparks. And, but they did, I have to say, you know, they did learn quickly and they've done several very good ones since then. So I would love to see some other architects just take a shot at it just to see what would happen. As I said, the Bjork Ingels thing is promising, but there's not like a list of, you know, a lot of great architects around who've never done it because no one's ever asked. I guess it's not the most common project. No, not, uh, uh, right. And, and there's, been, there's been such a wave built in the last generation. They're not going to be that many. I mean, Oakland is one of the most needy now of teams. The uh, Rays in Florida, who have what's probably the worst ballpark in baseball, Tropicana, will have to replace it at some point, either there or somewhere. That will be a great opportunity for somebody. I hope that the, I think that uh, Diamondbacks are looking into a new ballpark, which would be good because that's not a great one either. But, you know, there's not going to be that much because so much has been built in the last few years. And the good ones should keep going. You know, I mean, I mean, Coors Field, Camden Yards, those are just hitting their stride. You know, they're 25 plus years old, but fine, you know. So what's next for Paul Goldberger? Uh, not build, build, not building a ballpark. No, no. Um, <laughs> you done with know, ballparks I've, for a while? I've, I've, done with books? Did you say done with ballparks? Done for with, a while. Well, I'm, I'm having so much fun with this book. I'm, I'm definitely want to talk about it as much as possible yeah. for a while. I'm working on a short book, not a full length book like this, on Dumbo, the neighborhood in Brooklyn, that as a sort of case study of a place that again kind of went shows the transformation of an urban neighborhood from industrial to upscale residential and working and all that. And it's an an unusual and I think very beautiful neighborhood with a kind of um, connection to urban infrastructure and the waterfront that is very intense and and for me very exciting. So I'm I'm writing that, but it's a book that's more of a, it'll have a lot of pictures. It's a text that'll probably be a quarter of the length of this. So I don't consider it a major project of many years. But I'm having fun with that, and I'm thinking about what the next super big project is. I don't know. Any thoughts on who should be the next architecture critic for the LA Times? Well, I would love there to be one. Yes. I mean, you know, I would. I don't. I don't want to simply say anybody because I would regret that. But in fact, you know, the the failure to fill that seat, which is so important, is I think you know, devastating for this city. I mean, Los Angeles has one of the most vibrant architecture communities in the country, if not the world. It had, uh, probably after New York and Chicago, the longest tradition of its major daily newspaper being actively involved in the discourse about architecture through a strong architecture critic. Christopher Hawthorne had, I think, done an outstanding job over many years. And it's, I think it's terrible that they did not consider it a top priority to replace him. You know, if they, if they were really ready to do it and they had a list of four people, I might say who I preferred. But I think at this point, the more important thing is just get somebody in who's smart and eager and wants to work and has the backing of the newspaper behind them so that the LA Times is again actively involved in discussion about architecture in this city, which is so important. Yeah, well said. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, joining you. us today. Thank you for getting me excited about baseball. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for reading sh- the book with such care. I appreciate it. I'm sure mm-hmm. many people will uh, see baseball in an entirely new light. And I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to the next time I go to Dodger Stadium so I can Great, look you. at it from through your which eyes. is Which is you know, amazing to realize it's the third oldest ballpark now in the major leagues. And I think is still, it's an unusual case to Dodger Stadium because it, you know, in one sense, it represents all the suburbanization that we, that I dislike in baseball. And of course, it's completely automobile oriented. It's impossible to get into. It's impossible to get out of. But once you're actually sitting there in your seat, it is one of the nicest places in America to watch baseball in. And Walter O'Malley actually is a, what, I don't want to give away every little story in the book, but there's a lot in the book about the Dodgers, both in Brooklyn and here. And he was more complicated than I had thought. It was not just that he was a villain trying to screw Brooklyn and move his team. What he hated was not Brooklyn. What he hated was Ebbets Field, the old ballpark, which is too bad because it was quite wonderful, but he just thought of it as dirty and decrepit and unfixable. And he wanted a modern fan-friendly experience and that's all he cared about. And he tried to do that in Brooklyn before it became impossible. And he then made the deal with Los Angeles. But when they were planning Dodger Stadium, he sent his, his management team and his architects to um, Disneyland, which we talked about earlier, to see how you treat customers. And, and here's this beautiful, clean, nice, attractive place where they take care of their paying customers. And he, he essentially said to them, I want this ballpark to treat people that way. So there we are. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Well, that's my conversation with Paul Goldberger. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. And you can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.